from PRX. Studio 360. I can't even hear one bar of that music without feeling a jolt of childhood delight and anxiety. Every fall when I was growing up in Nebraska, my siblings and I would sit down for the annual viewing of the movie. It was like a holiday ritual, one I looked forward to a lot more than some actual holiday rituals. I'll get you, my pretty. And so even today, 40 years later, almost any random sample of that soundtrack transports me back to that universe of fantastic twisters and flying houses and munchkins and flying monkeys and witches and Dorothy and Oz. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I'm not alone in this reminiscence of things past. Almost everybody, I think, has their own set of intense, indelible Wizard of Oz moments. I was certainly drawn to the witch. The director, Neil LeBute, first saw the movie when he was growing up in Spokane, Washington. I realized the power of the close-up. And when she became, you know, larger than life, I can remember backing away toward the kitchen. Can I still have my dog? No! The novelist Salman Rushdie first watched the movie in a theater in Bombay when he was 10. Years later, he sat down with a videotape and watched it over and over and over again. I fully expected by the end of it to detest the film. Instead, I liked it much, much more because it showed me things, that process, which I had never seen before. I'm Kurt Anderson. Today in Studio 360, we are plunging deep into this American icon, taking you down alleys and roads in Oz that you've probably never traveled before. I don't like this forest. It's it's dark and creepy. Before the 1939 movie and the songs and the other movies and the Broadway musicals, Oz was conjured in a single book, adored by hordes of children in the early 1900s. The book was written by L. Frank Baum, who at the time was the editor of The Shop Window, a trade magazine about retail window displays. The 1900 edition of the original Wonderful Wizard of Oz, with drawings by the newspaper cartoonist W.W. Denslow, sold for a buck fifty and flew off the shelves at virtually Harry Potter speed. Baum went on to write 14 more Oz books over the next 20 years. Eric Malinsky has the story of the real man behind the curtain. Lyman Frank Baum failed at every career he tried. He couldn't make it as an actor. His newspaper flopped. He couldn't sell crockery. In the Depression of 1888, he opened a general store in South Dakota and sold gourmet chocolates and Japanese lanterns. Baum was literally a rainbow chaser. Michael Patrick Hearn has spent most of his life studying L. Frank Baum. He says Baum was a classic overachiever. Nothing could be done second rate. If he was going to open a store, it was going to be the best store. If he was going to sell axle grease, it would have to be the best axle grease. If he was going to sell chickens, they had to be purebred chickens. Baum had one clear talent, telling stories. The kids in the neighborhood would follow him around like he was the Pied Piper. He didn't think he could make a career out of it. And his mother-in-law spent her winters with the Baums. And she said, you better write these down, Frank. You're a fool not to. Matilda Jocelyn Gage may have convinced her son-in-law to write The Wizard of Oz, but her influence on Baum didn't stop there. She was a pioneer in the women's rights movement, partners with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, until they had a falling out. 
Gage has been largely forgotten by history, but you can see her radical feminist ideas all over Baum's work, especially with the character of Dorothy. She's thrown into the situation, and nothing's going to keep her from solving her problems. She even loses her temper, and that's why the Wicked Witch is destroyed, is because she loses her temper and throws a bucket of water on her. This is a pivotal moment in children's literature. It's the first time a child is allowed to lose its temper and not get punished for it. The books were popular, but Baum didn't really hit it big until he turned The Wizard of Oz into a Broadway musical in 1902. All of the things. Baum had finally found success, but that didn't make his life any easier. He tried to end the Oz series after six books and move on to other stories, but they just didn't sell. So he decided to build a franchise out of the one thing he got right. Baum moved his family to Hollywood in 1909. The movie industry hadn't even started yet. Baum's Oz films were some of the first motion pictures made in Los Angeles and he cast unknown actors who would later become the very first movie stars, like Harold Lloyd, Oliver Hardy, and Hal Roach. What was interesting about the the films is that everyone had an original score, which was almost unheard of at this time. And this was like the first scoring of motion pictures. In California, it had an orchestra. In uh, New York, it had an orchestra. And then, I guess, in smaller towns, they would have people playing the piano. But it was not a success. Baum even tried to sell dolls of the new characters as part of the ad campaign for the upcoming books, musicals, and movies. He was doing everything Disney would try 10 years later. But Baum couldn't pull it off. Like Disney, Baum understood the future of entertainment. But his business sense hadn't improved since he tried selling Japanese lanterns to South Dakota miners. Baum's family remembers him as the eternal optimist, taking his failures in stride. But even they admit that his real home was in his imagination. Michael Patrick Hearn wonders if Oz played an even more important role for Baum. No one creates a secondary world like the land of Oz who's happy with the world as it is. I think there were a lot of things that Baum was not happy about his life and about America. And a lot of that gets into the Oz books. When The Wizard of Oz movie came out in 1939, Janine Basinger was a little girl growing up in the real Great Plains of South Dakota, not far from where L. Frank Baum had lived. Today, she is a professor at Wesleyan University and one of the top film scholars in the world. Basinger says that while Baum was extraordinary, growing up during the Depression on the prairies, she knew a lot of folks like him. Many people who didn't grow up on the prairie picture all of the people out there as these sort of sturdy people in work boots, you know, digging around in the earth and making things grow and saying, let's bring in them crops or something, you know. Or Uncle Henry and Aunt Em. Exactly. And the truth is that it was a world of strange eccentrics. And there's something about the geography of the place that opens the imagination to anything and everything. And there's something about the loneliness of the place and the wind and its isolation. Here is Frank Baum's own description of that landscape. When Dorothy stood in the doorway and looked around, she could see nothing but the great gray prairie on every side. Not a tree nor a house broke the broad sweep of flat country, that reached to the edge of the sky in all directions. The sun had baked the plowed land into a gray mass, with little cracks running through it. Even the grass was not green, 
for the sun had burned the tops of the long blades until they were the same gray color to be seen everywhere. In the first paragraph of The Wizard of Oz by Baum, he describes a very gray, dull scene. There was no color whatsoever. Ernie Harburg is the son of Yip Harburg, and Yip Harburg was the lyricist who, with composer Harold Arlen, created some of the most enduring popular music of all time, including the music for The Wizard of Oz. If you've ever stood out in the middle of Kansas or the Great Plains, it is a, you, you can see for miles the whole horizon and everything. And when those rainbows come out, you are just overwhelmed. And Yip, your father, came up with the idea of the rainbow. Yeah, oh yes, that's absolutely true. You can read through the bound book, the word rainbow is never mentioned once. So Yip did bring the rainbow into the Wizard of Oz with all of its incredible poetic, metaphorical, deep meaning worldwide as a universal kind of symbol, that's right. Day I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me. Where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops, that's where you'll find. And here you have a little girl in trouble. And when you're in trouble, all of us. I mean, I think this is universal because kids are oppressed by tyrannical parents. I don't care what kind of parents they are. They're bigger and they push them around, you know. And in this case, Miss Gulch was going to take Dorothy's dog away from her. So the first thing that comes into mind when you're that angry is, I want to get out of here. Where can I run to? So when they got together and they said, okay, we need a song for Dorothy, and it's got to be a song of yearning, yearning to get out of there, see? If happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, why, oh, why can't I? Ever since, that yearning has resonated with people around the world. The Wizard of Oz has probably been seen by more people than any other movie, including one 10-year-old boy in India who went to see The Wizard of Oz at the Metro Cinema in Bombay in the 1950s. Soon afterward, he wrote his first story called Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Salman Rushdie went on to write novels, including Midnight's Children and the Satanic Verses. He says the movie was his very first literary influence. And Rushdie has written a wonderful little book about The Wizard of Oz. Let's listen to him reading some of it to an audience in Vancouver. Anyone who has swallowed the scriptwriter's notion that this is a film about the superiority of home over away, that the moral of The Wizard of Oz is as sickly sweet as an embroidered sampler. East-West, home's best. There's no place like home. 
would do well to listen to the yearning in Judy Garland's voice as her face tilts upward towards the skies. What she expresses here, what she embodies with the purity of an archetype, is the human dream of leaving, a dream at least as powerful as its countervailing dream of roots. At the heart of The Wizard of Oz is the tension between these two dreams. But as the music swells and that big, clean voice flies into the anguished longings of the song, can anyone doubt which message is the stronger? In its most potent emotional moment, this is unarguably a film about the joys of going away, of leaving the greyness and entering the colour, of making a new life in the place where there isn't any trouble. Over the Rainbow is, or ought to be, the anthem of all the world's migrants, all those who go in search of the place where the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true. It is a celebration of escape, a grand pian to the uprooted self, a hymn, the hymn, to elsewhere. and we're looking long and hard at The Wizard of Oz today from every possible angle. Up next, finding meaning in Oz, from the sublime to the ridiculous. One historian suggested that Toto might have represented those teetotaling prohibitionists. This is Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. What's she done? I'm all but lame from the bite on my leg. Me, she bit you? No, her dog. She bit her dog, eh? We must be over the rainbow. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And today we are taking a special guided tour of Oz. Just follow the yellow brick road. Like Elvis Presley or Star Trek or Civil War history, The Wizard of Oz inspires passions so intense that devotees form their own cults and communities. I will be in Lyle, Illinois for the Osmopolitan Convention. I will be in Grand Rapids, Minnesota for the Judy Garland Convention. I will be at the Munchkin Convention in New Jersey, the Chesterton Festival in Chesterton, Indiana, the Land of Oz Park at Banner Elk, North Carolina. Wherever Oz is, I is, is what I say. It's no surprise that Oz conventions are held all over the world, including one annually in Chittenango, New York. My name is Margaret Pellegrini, and I was one of the Munchkins. It was great. I met all the movie stars and got to work with Judy Garland. How many have seen The Wizard of Oz? They said goodbye. 
just to meet somebody from the film just makes you feel part of it. They're so cute and so sweet, and they're just so grateful that we love them. I do collect Wizard of Oz, and I even have some personal items that belong to the Munchkins. Uh, Margaret Pellegrini gave me a, a black nightgown that she wore. I have a pair of pants and shoes that Clarence Swenson gave me that he personally wore. I have a pair of shoes from his wife. I mean, they're tiny. Collecting munchkin clothes may be a little bizarre, but just as strange are some of the theories about Oz that have sprung up over the years. Almost all of them are interesting, even when they aren't so convincing. We sent Curtis Fox to help us make our way through this dense, tangled forest of interpretation. It all got started in 1963, during a summer class at a high school in Mount Vernon, New York. Henry Littlefield, a history teacher, was having a hard time interesting his students in populism, the late 19th century agrarian political movement. In a hot, airless classroom, he had to explain how populist politicians wanted to add silver to the nation's gold standard to create inflation, which would help debt-ridden farmers. It didn't go well. So Littlefield resorted to a new teaching tool that, as historian David Parker explains, was a stroke of pedagogical genius. Littlefield came into his class the next day and told his students very excitedly that Dorothy in The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was wearing silver shoes. Those slippers weren't silver, the students said. They'd seen the movie. And remember, never let those ruby slippers off your feet for a moment. But in the book, they are silver, Littlefield said. And they were a clue to the real meaning of The Wizard of Oz. Following the yellow brick road. Again, David Parker. He told his class that Dorothy was walking on a yellow brick, maybe a gold road, and he suggested that maybe this was a parable of what those Midwestern farmers in the late 19th century were pushing for, both silver and gold, as a way of achieving happiness and prosperity. Maybe there is something there. Littlefield thought so. And in 1964, an academic journal published his article on the subject. Nobody really knew if L. Frank Baum ever intended The Wizard of Oz to be an allegory for populism. And there were a lot of reasons to think that he didn't. But in spite of its debatable merits as a literary theory, over the next 20 years, scholars jumped on Littlefield's bandwagon. For example, one historian suggested that Toto, you know, Dorothy's dog, might have represented those teetotaling prohibitionists. Now, what evidence would they have for that? None at all, except... It might have been. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. That's right, Dorothy. We're in academia in the 1960s, when it was cool to be against the system and anti-capitalist feeling was running high. We must be over the rainbow. Littlefield's theory became the standard academic line on Oz. College professors passed it on to their students who told their friends about it. So that even today, when the book or the movie comes up in conversation, there's almost always a wise guy there to let you in on the skinny. You know, it's really about silver, don't you? That same guy will probably tell you that the Pink Floyd album Dark Side of the Moon is perfectly synchronized with the events in the Wizard of Oz movie. It's a legend that has circulated for decades on college campuses. Oh, you can't. You mustn't. Nick Mason, Pink Floyd's drummer, is not one of the believers. Yeah, this is, I'm afraid to say, is a piece of complete nonsense. But truth can't stand in the way of an irresistible rumor. 
And the little field populist theory, like the Pink Floyd synchronization theory, lives on as urban folklore. In the meantime, many other interpretations of The Wizard of Oz started blowing around. One scholar has argued that it's really a lesbian love triangle between Dorothy, Glinda, and the Wicked Witch of the West. Then there are the Freudian interpretations. Those ruby red slippers? Well, obviously they symbolize anxiety over Dorothy's budding sexuality. From this perspective, there's no such thing as an innocent movie. Give me back my slippers. I'm the only one that knows how to use them. They're no use to you. Give them back to me. Give them back. Keep tight inside of them. Their magic must be very powerful, or she wouldn't want them so badly. You stay out of this, Glinda. And since we're talking about sex, what about the ambiguous gender roles here? Take the cowardly lion. He cries, he runs away in fear, he does all the things that no real man or lion would do. And you know why? He's gay. Yeah, it's sad, believe me, missy, when you're born to be a sissy without the feminine vibe. Yes, there were always rumors, but the cowardly lion was finally outed by gay scholars in the 80s and 90s. Dee Michelle is writing a book about Oz and the lives of gay men. Gay enthusiasm for The Wizard of Oz is, of course, a stereotype. It also happens to be true, Michelle says, though it's not merely the kitchen camp of the movie that have drawn gay men to Oz. He says that the cowardly lion, the tin man, and the scarecrow functioned as gender-bending role models for many boys who grew up to be gay. They act in non-macho ways that are, resonate with the way these boys themselves are acting or feeling. They tend to cry or be teased for being a sissy, express their emotions, care more about their appearance. That's funny. Wasn't he pointing the other way? Of course, people do go both ways. So just what is it about Oz that generates so many theories, interpretations, and readings? I put that question to the novelist Alison Lurie, who has written extensively about children's literature and about Oz. This was an American fairy tale. Instead of taking over European figures of the fairy and the ogre, he invented new supernatural characters, the scarecrow and the tin man, the winged monkeys. And nobody could say for certain what these new supernatural American characters or landscapes in Oz stood for, if anything. Is the tin man a dehumanized industrial worker? Are the winged monkeys really Plains Indians and the Wicked Witch of the West their white overlord? Nobody knew. And even now, nobody really knows. Today we're talking about an American icon, the Wizard of Oz. With me now is the screenwriter and director Neil LeBute, who might be considered an unlikely Oz fan. His films, from In the Company of Men to The Shape of Things, all involve everyday modern people in very real situations. Neil, what, of course, wasn't mentioned there, in addition to caring about their appearance and all the rest, they were following Judy Garland around, I guess. <laughs> I just realized myself that I'm gay now from hearing that, and it's quite a breakthrough. I'm glad we could uh, do that for you. Do, it, that was very helpful. It's been you, a good morning. Do, do you find any of those academic theories 
persuasive, let alone interesting? Absolutely, equally interesting and and somewhat hilarious. I think that's the, that's the beauty of something that retains a sense of, of mystery and one of the great gifts to an audience, which is not spelling everything out, allowing the audience to take – to do the rest of the work, to take these elements home with them and, and decide for themselves what they've actually got from it and, and allows subjectivity to reign. And, uh, you know, so I've heard various takes on, on, on that. And, and what was a fascinating listening to that, as interesting as it was, nothing was more interesting to me than the background sound of the movie itself. And I was concentrating on what, what the others had to say, but I, I constantly would, would be listening to the munchkins and the score, which is beautiful and sound design. You know, I'll, I'll, it's not even going out on a limb. For me, it's the most successful kind of melding of all the, the best things that a studio could do in terms of, of stars and, um, um, production value uh, and just what the package ultimately represented. I, I think it's a, a beautiful example of, of what the studio system could do when it was working at its peak. Another screenwriter and director, Nora Ephron, says that The Wizard of Oz has influenced every one of her movies, from Heartburn to presumably Julie and Julia. But even though she makes movies for a living, she takes her inspiration from the printed page. I must have read Ozma of Oz 50 times. And I remember as a kid spending hours trying to figure out whether if I were living in Oz, would I rather be Dorothy or Ozma? And then there were more fundamental things to worry about. For example, if I were going to be Dorothy, what age did I want to go to Oz at? Because when you went to Oz, you stayed the same age forever. Do they come back to you today? Do, do thoughts and themes and images reoccur? Well, yes, they absolutely do. And the thing I truly think about The Wizard of Oz, I can't think of any thing that has had a greater cultural effect in the 20th century. I see it everywhere. I mean, the simple little things like the fact that Seattle is called the Emerald City and Australia is called Oz. Uh The number of references in movies, there are so many that you can't even believe how often it There are quotes from it. I'll get you my pretty and your little dog, too. (laughs) Don't worry, Bob. I'll get her. And her little dog, too. I don't know where we are, Toto. This sure isn't Kansas. I don't think we're in Kansas anymore, Toto. I don't think we're in the food chain anymore, Dorothy. Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy, because Kansas is going bye-bye. Have you ever been tempted to try to make a film? Oh, God, no. You mean except for using little themes from it all the time? No. You mean an Oz film? Uh-huh. No. No. I mean, I, a, a true Oz film, never. Because? Oh, because I just, I mean, because, because even though I know The Wizard of Oz is a great movie, it's still not what was in my head. Judy Garland is not Dorothy, as far as I'm concerned. Dorothy is the girl that John Arneal drew the pictures of. Uh huh. And so you just would be afraid that you could not hope to live up to your the perfection of, of the book's universe in your mind if you try to make a movie? Absolutely never. Because you can't ever create something concrete 
that has so such a so many imaginative possibilities. You you you're making it finite when you turn it into something concrete. It seems to me. Can you dig this? In 1975, The Wiz opened on Broadway with a pop score and an all-black cast and became a movie as well. Come on, then. He's on down, he's on down the road. What's a Wiz? What's a Wiz? Oh, darling, he's the ultimate. On Broadway, The Wiz was actually a real breakthrough. It proved to the industry that there was a big black audience for shows, for theater, and paved the way for a lot of successful musicals that feature black characters. The current Oz-themed hit on Broadway is Wicked, a prequel all about the early friendship between the main witches, young goody-goody Glinda and the not-yet-wicked witch of the West. Are people born wicked? Or do they have wickedness thrust upon them? After all, she had a father. She had a mother, as so many do. How I hate to go and leave you alone. But maybe the most interesting latter-day take on Oz is a sequel to the original movie directed by Walter Murch. Murch is the legendary film editor who helped make The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. He read the Oz books when he was a kid, but that isn't what inspired him to make Return to Oz, his directorial debut. Walter Murch was always bothered by one little moment at the end of the 1939 movie. But it wasn't a dream. It was a place. And you, and you, and you... Dorothy, the Judy Garland Dorothy, starts to talk about this place. And she sees them all looking at each other kind of funny, like maybe she's been touched. (laughs) And then she pulls herself back and she says, oh, well, let's forget all about all that. It's just so good to be back home. There's no place like home. But that's really, from a psychological point of view, that's kind of a ticking time bomb. What would happen to you if you'd had this huge experience and didn't have anyone to tell it to? Aunt Em, at the end of her tether, reads this ad of somebody who promises to solve these kinds of problems, and she, she takes Dorothy to this doctor. You, uh, you mentioned something about a, a tiger. A lion. A cowardly lion. And he could talk, too, like the scarecrow and the tin man? Yes, all the animals in Oz could talk. I think I know just the thing to cheer Dorothy up. This electrical marvel will make it possible for you to sleep again. Dorothy is about to get electroshock therapy when she's rescued by Princess Ozma and whisked right back to Oz, where she makes new friends. Pleased to meet you. I am Tick-Tock, the Royal Army of Oz. Battles a wicked queen. I believe I'll lock you in the tower for a few years till your head is ready, and then I'll take it. I believe you will not! Once again, Dorothy saves Oz, but she decides to go home again. I wish I could be in both places at the same time. Dorothy! Is there a favorite scene that you do like from the 1939 movie? The moment where Dorothy throws water on the witch, it's a wonderful, very simple effect, which is that she melts. But 
in fact, the actress Margaret Hamilton must be uh, just sinking into a hole that they built for her, leaving her clothes behind. But what she says has always struck me. I'm melting. I'm melting. But then she says, what a world. What a world. And that's very Baumian because it just talks about the strangeness of existence. You're listening to Studio 360, and today we're trying to get a handle on an American icon, the Wizard of Oz. In a minute, we're really not in Kansas anymore. There are emerald cities everywhere. You can find a shopping mall with this name practically in every Russian town. That's just ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. I'm Kurt Anderson. This is Studio 360, and today we're exploring an American icon, the Wizard of Oz. When I was a kid, there was no earthly place less like home than the Soviet Union. In fact, one of the first times I watched The Wizard of Oz on TV in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis had ended only a few days earlier. To us, back then, the Soviets might as well have been the Wicked Witch and her flying monkeys. But I've now discovered that while I was watching the movie and thinking about Khrushchev nuking Omaha, Russian kids were enjoying The Wizard of Oz on their own terms. Very much on their own terms. Vasily Arkhanov explains. As a kid growing up in Moscow in the 70s, I knew nothing about Frank Baum or Judy Garland or Kansas. If at that time I had somehow found out about an American girl named Dorothy, I would have deemed her an imposter. In our book, she was Ellie. It was Ellie who walked down the yellow brick road in search of an emerald city. Ellie who met her friends, the Scarecrow, the Iron Woodman, and the Cowardly Lion. Ellie who sang our favorite song that went like this. Down the difficult path we go that leads to Emerald City. It all began almost by accident when Alexander Volkov, age 46, decided to learn English. A chapter from The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was his assignment for home reading. He read and recounted it to his two sons. They were so intrigued that begged for more. Volkov's granddaughter, Kaleria, remembers. He kept translating for them and also making up new episodes. He was very imaginative. Later, he put everything on paper and showed it to the publishers. The first edition was simple, complemented only by a few black and white drawings. It went completely unnoticed. It wasn't until 20 years later, in 1959, when the colored illustrations by artist Leonid Vladimirsky turned it into an overnight sensation. Before I started to draw, I watched not only the movie, but also the American edition of Baum's book, illustrated by Denslow. I noticed that he made his scarecrow really scary. His head is filled with straw. He has big, round eyes and a hole in place of a nose. 
And I thought, a scarecrow should scare away the crows, not the kids. This new illustrated edition did a little magic of its own. For several years in a row, no matter how many copies were printed, it remained in high demand. And each print was no less than 100,000 copies. There were waiting lists in the libraries for the book all across the country. Some kids even copied it word for word in longhand in their composition books with their own illustrations. There was this girl, Galia, from Siberia. She sent Volkov her handwritten book with a note. I am sending you my bad book. Please send me your good one. Her bad book is now in the museum. Naturally, Volkov sent her a new copy. Why was the book so popular? It's hard to say. The pictures were great, of course, the dialogues were witty, the adventures were fun, but most important, there was no boring propaganda or ideology, which was usually a requirement for published stories. We could easily identify ourselves with Ellie, because she was exactly like us. Her realness made the improbable reality of the magic land possible. We were starved for magic, and we desperately wanted to believe in Emerald City. The book even entered our language. Volkov named his Wicked Witch of the West Gingema, while the Wicked Witch of the East was Bastinda. Even today, that's what he would call a really nasty woman. She's such a Gingema. For my generation, Ellie was all we cared about. Over the course of Volkov's books, Ellie grew older, as we did. Somewhere along the way, our dream turned into a brand. There are emerald cities everywhere. You can find a shopping mall with this name practically in every Russian town, or daycare facilities, or even nightclubs. We can visit the magic land whenever we want. But there is no magic there. It's fascinating for someone who grew up in South Dakota to hear that because, of course, there's an enormous connection between the prairie agriculture and uh, geographical makeup in the Russian steppes. So, of course, why wouldn't the literature work for both? Once more, that's Janine Basinger, the film scholar and Wizard of Oz expert. Is there, do you think, a, a peculiar kind of DNA of Oz that makes it different from Alice's Wonderland or Narnia or Tolkien's Middle Earth? Is it, how is it a fantasy universe of its own? I think Oz is a little bit simpler, a little less burdened with meanings and moralities, and it was definitely written for children. It's a very American kind of fairy tale. It's modernized. It's not loaded with morality. It's got pep and energy and sass, and it's, you know, I think that's what it is about it. It's ours. As a film professor... Have you noticed over the years any difference in the way students sort of regard the movie or react to it when they see it? The Wizard of Oz remains pure for them because they experience it as children. They're like, oh, I love to see this. I love this when I was a kid. And they tend never to say, gee, that wasn't very good because – 
it can re-deliver what it delivers to you when you're a kid. And I think that's the reason the film can go forward over time. It's divorced from time. It doesn't have all these heavy political meanings that date it. The talent is fresh and new. The music is joyous. The color is great. And it can work for them as a happy memory of something they loved as a child. That's film scholar Janine Basinger. In an amazing performance, the singer Bobby McFerrin manages to recapture the delight of that childhood experience. He condenses the entire movie into a manic 10-minute medley of songs and dialogue. We caught up with McFerrin while he was out on tour, and I asked him about his childhood memories of watching The Wizard of Oz. Well, I remember that I couldn't stop laughing for a good 10, 15 minutes <laughs> when the lion sang, if I were king of the podcast, you know, <laughs> I just thought that was the funniest thing in the world. If I were king of the podcast. And uh, I remember kicking the covers off my bed and, you know, just flailing about in laughter. It was, it was just, it really struck my funny bone. <laughs> well, we would love to hear your celebrated performance of The Wizard of Oz, if you do it for us. Uh, see, let's see. Da, 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 where, where should I start? You know, it's very. You know, that's very interesting because I, it's an audience piece. It's it's more than just me on stage singing. Uh-huh. It's uh-huh. I'll be your audience. Fifty, sixty percent of the piece is it's an audience piece, so it's kind of hard to do. And then when 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 you do the 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 famous Wicked Witch of the West music, do you do you mm-hmm. go scary when you? Well, I don't know how I don't know how scary I am, but I I try to you know dress up in the characters as best as I can. <laughs> my sister was that you I'll get you my pretty and you little dog follow me on the big road in the movie ends of course with the famous it was all a dream and you and you and you were there and all that right right in the in the book, it's 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 a real place they never sort of cop out that way hmm. how do you feel about just as a as a narrative, as a as a, an idea, would you rather have it be a real place or a dream? Do you think? Well, I I would rather stay grounded in reality. I mean, I'm I'm already the a kind of person that's been described as uh, the gold ball on the top of a flagpole at the top of a very tall building. You know, not mm-hmm. very grounded, just kind of head up <laughs> in the clouds a lot. So I I would rather find that happiness. I think that's what she finally learned is that. You know the happiness that she sought she already had, but didn't know it and uh in fact, one of the reasons that um, I'm staying home for years is to to remind myself of those things that uh that I really have that are really really important it's It's so easy to forget you just lose sight of so much when you're constantly on the move and traveling and and uh and and the applause of the audience and, and all the things that you can get caught up in. And so I'm basically, you know, clicking my heels and I'm I'm ready to sort of wake up again. <laughs> <laughs> then close your eyes 
and tap your heels together three times and think to yourself, there's no place like home. There's no place like home, Bobby. That's really, 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 really true. There's no place like home. Yeah. There's no over this last hour, we've explored the endless themes and variations in the world of Oz. But the idea of home is what seems to hit the strongest emotional chord for almost everybody, even if we don't necessarily agree on what home really means. What is the origin of the word Oz? Baum himself said that it came from two letters on his file cabinet. But you, you meet people from the neighboring land, which is called Ev. And as strange as it may seem, if there was a Turkish person sitting at this table, those two words, Oz and Ev, are words that to the Turkish culture are pillars of kind of psychic grounding. Oz means the soul or the essence, uh, the, the nectar, the, the central core of your being. And Ev means home. This was a real, truly live place. And I remember that some of it wasn't very nice, but most of it was beautiful. But just the same, all I kept saying to everybody was, I want to go home. And they sent me home. <laughs> I think the place you were born and raised always feels like home in a way, you know. And, and for me, I go to Bombay and I have that feeling of going home. You know, I, I do. But it's not a home I particularly want to live in anymore, in the same way as you want to move out of your parents' house at some point, you know. Um, in the end, the home that matters is the one you make, you know, and, and, and that's what becomes the most important feeling of home, and I have that like anyone else. You know, and that's why I take such issue with this idea in the film that, that, that there's no place like home idea, which is that return is the point. You know, return isn't the point. Going forward is the point. Who would go to Kansas when you could live in Oz? Um, <laughs> you know, sorry, Kansas. But in fact, in the books, in the, in the Oz books, uh, Frank Baum quite rapidly came to the same conclusion. And in the third or fourth book, I forget, actually Dorothy takes Aunt Em and Uncle Henry and takes them to Oz, and they all settle down there. You know, so, so the discovered world, the invented home, you know, becomes home. And, and I think that's more truthful about our relationship with the idea of home than just that you always have to go back to where you started. But anyway, Toto, we're home. Home. And this is my room. And you're all here. And I'm not going to leave here ever, ever again. Because I love you all. And, oh, Annie M, there's no place like home. This is Kurt Anderson in Studio 360, and I want to thank you for coming along on this journey to Oz. Since we first aired this episode in 2005, Nora Ephron, Margaret Pellegrini, and Leonid Vladimirsky have died. Special thanks to Julie Burstein, Arun Roth, Eric Malinsky, Jonathan Mitchell, and Ave Carrillo. We would love to hear any and all of your thoughts about The Wizard of Oz and the hour you just heard. Tell us at Studio360.org. And while you're there at our website, you can listen to all of Studio360's American Icon series. 
like Andy Warhol's soup cans. The can was, for Andy, rough trade. You know, like a sailor. And Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. Kind of Blue was a record that if you had it on you, it showed that you had intelligence, that you had taste, that you were hip. You can find out why Frank Lloyd Wright had such a chip on his shoulder. Frank Lloyd Wright was known to wander around his studio with a fly swatter. And before killing flies, he would name them. Gropius, Courbusier, Mies, whack, whack, whack. It's all at Studio360.org. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, after white supremacists hail Donald Trump, a show about a Nazified America seemed a little less far-fetched. There's a lot of space between Trump is literally Hitler and yes. everything is fine, and a lot of the stuff in that space is, you know, bad enough on its own. The New York Times' James Panawazek on the new resonance of the TV show The Man in the High Castle. That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.